All right, you ready to get into the Word of God? I hope you have a Bible with you this morning because we are going to wear it out. We're going to be looking at a bunch of passages together and thinking a lot about the church. Last week, uh, we began this series on defining the church with really what amounts to a, a church history lesson. And I'm still patting myself on the back for getting through 2,000 years of church history in a matter of about 20 minutes. And uh, hopefully some of that stuck with you as you think about this fact. Whatever has happened in the history of the church, the church of Jesus Christ is alive and it is well. The church is still being used by God to change the world. And, and to the degree that we're going to continue to do that, we have to be in tune with becoming the kind of church that God always had in mind when he invented the church. So that's what we're going to start doing this morning. We're going to start really looking at how can we get a working definition of the church. And I, and I should tell you right off the bat, we're, we're not going to be giving you a textbook definition of the church that rivals all others. The idea, there's a lot of uh, books that have been written on the church, and there's a lot of things that have been said about what makes up the church, what are the foundations of the church. We're not here to argue about the finer points of that. But what I do want to do is give us an overview of some of the most profound principles that are going to guide us as we seek to become the church that God has always had in mind for us to be. So this is not an exhaustive study. There are, there's all kinds of books that have been written on this topic, and they all say a lot of different things. But the way I look at it, the Bible is the book. The Bible is the most, um, the most valuable book that we have on the topic of what the church is. So we're going to try to get an overview of what the Bible says about the church. And I thought about how I can sort of illustrate this principle of these foundations of the church. And I was thinking, you know, um, the church in a lot of ways is like this stool that I'm sitting on. It's a four-legged stool, right? Uh, hopefully you can see that. It's got four legs. And we're going to be talking about four legs or pillars of the church today because if you take away one of these legs... Guess what happens to the stool? It falls over, and if you're sitting on it, you're going to fall over too. And so what we're trying to do is get a sense of, if we're going to be balanced as a church, what is that going to look like for us? And, and for our purposes this morning, we're going to talk about four legs or four pillars or four foundations, if you will, uh, of the church. And those four are this, love, worship, unity, and ministry. Love, worship, unity, and ministry. And I want to tell you right now, if you're putting those things in your notes, don't number them. They're not in any particular order. Every one of them is essential. It doesn't matter which of the legs you take away from the stool, you will fall over. It just uh, it matters which direction you're going to fall when you fall. And so we can't take away any of those legs from the stool. We want to make sure that, that love and worship and unity and ministry are always equally valued as we try to become the church that God always 
had in mind. I want to begin our trek through Scripture this morning in the book of 1 Timothy. So take your Bibles and find the book of 1 Timothy. It's after you go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Then you get to 1 Timothy. It's really toward the back of your Bible. And go to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we're going to pick this up in verse 7. 1 Timothy 4, 7. But have, you know what? I'm going to start in verse 6 so we get the context. In pointing out these things to the brethren, he writes to Timothy, the pastor of the church of Ephesus, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, if you happen to be an old woman on Paul's behalf, I apologize. Uh, he was not being very politically correct there, but he's saying we need to not be caught up in things that don't matter. We need to be focused on the things that do matter. And he goes on in verse 8 and he says this, For bodily discipline is only of little profit. Amen. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. He says that we need to be disciplined for godliness. And when you think about that idea of discipline, I just want to give you a reminder, especially those of you kids who are listening. We've been going through the fruit of the Spirit, and in a couple weeks you're going to get to the last one mentioned in the list of uh, parts of the fruit of the Spirit, and that is self-control. Self-control, my friends, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, when you are under the control of God, you will have control of yourself. God expects us to control ourselves. God expects us to discipline ourselves. You and I are not going to have a life characterized by love, worship, unity, and ministry by accident. That's only going to happen if we're disciplined about it. We have to discipline ourselves to live out the high standards of Christ because it's about His glory. And the whole world is watching. Let me say that again, church. The whole world is watching. The world is watching to figure out whether what we say is really what we believe. The world is watching to find out if we actually take this Bible seriously. The world is watching our lives to find out what Jesus is like. And so this is important because the world is watching. All right, four things, but we're going to start with love today. And, and that for me is apropos because um, today is my wedding anniversary. And so when I think of love, I think of my wife and, and I think of her walking down the aisle in a white dress on the arm of her father. And I think of how I got weak in the knees when I looked at her and thought, I can't believe God is allowing me to marry this woman. I have been head over heels in love with this woman since the day I met her. It's such an incredible blessing for me. And we've been married now for 34 years, and I love her more today than I ever have before. So, so love is a profound power, right? But the kind of love you may know from your marriage, from your dating relationships, even from the way you love your children, is not exactly the kind of love that God is talking about. God's love is so much higher than our love. God's, God's love 
is a completely dependent upon his character. God's love is not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon us. And he's starting to talk to us here in the word about his love for us. There is no more obvious sign of lordship of Jesus Christ in someone's life than the sign of love. And Jesus made this incredibly, incredibly clear. Take your Bibles and turn to the first book of the New Testament. It's the book of Matthew. And I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 22, where Jesus gets a chance to talk about this topic. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34. Listen to this. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, I know you guys love following rules. I know you love to just dissect the the words in the Old Testament law and you hold everybody accountable to that. But here's what I want to tell you. If you will just love God with all your heart and love people the, the way that you love yourself already, then I'm telling you, you'll be living out the whole law and the prophets. Jesus says it's the most foundational thing. Now, over in the book of John, if you're in Matthew, just go two books to the right, uh, or three books to the right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and go to John chapter 13 and look at it in a different context. Again, this is Jesus speaking about this topic. John chapter 13 and verse 33. Little children... I'm with you a little while longer. You'll seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But before he goes, he wants to give them what they need in order to accomplish what the church has set out to accomplish. So here's what he says. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. In other words, what is the mark of being a follower of Jesus? Love. And then Paul gives it to us in even another context in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So if you're in John, you go Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and uh, this is a well-known chapter. I want to skip all the way to the end of the chapter, and look with me at verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what he says to wrap up his diatribe on love. He says this, But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. How important is love to us being the church that God always had in mind? It's so important that even when you put it up against faith and hope, he says these are the three things that should be true in the life of every Christian. Faith, hope, and love. How important is that? Faith, without faith it's impossible to please God. We come to salvation by faith. Faith is pretty important. Hope, nobody is going to even get up and move ahead into the next day without hope. Jesus is our hope, as Romans 5 explains to us. 
And he says, as important as those two things are, they're dwarfed by the importance of love. Love. It's at the foundation of who we need to be as a church. Now, I want you to think about this. Because this is a powerful truth. In fact, I want to say it like this. Warning. Here comes a powerful truth. This truth, if you apply it, will actually change your life. This, church, this truth, if you apply it, church, will actually change the lives of the people around you, the people who matter to you the most. And I want to give you one more warning. As we think about the statements of 1 Corinthians 13 and these statements about love, here's the warning. You've heard this before. You've heard this before. And so some of you already are thinking, okay, this is going to be just a repeat of stuff I already know. And there's a tendency we have to just like um, block it out and let our minds go and think about something else. Listen to me, church. This is as important as anything you're ever going to hear from the Word of God. It's absolutely foundational to our lives. You may think you understand it. It will be tempting to kind of tune it out and miss the power of this truth. Do not let that happen. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says that love is the greatest and the most foundational point of Christianity. The sad thing is that as important as it is, we will often excuse a lack of love in the life of a person who's a real superstar in the church. In other words, what we tend to value in the organized church is people who are really gifted. We tend to value the charismatic folks, the, the people with all the charisma, all the leadership skills, the people who up front make us laugh and cry, the people who, the, the people who have the beautiful singing voices, the people who are able to uh, you know, do all of the work of the ministry, go, those are the real spiritual giants. But God says, no, no, no. You can have the best singing voice in the world. You can be the best preacher in the world. You could be the best minister in the world. But without love, there's nothing. God never excuses a lack of love. He says love's the whole deal. Everything in the Christian life revolves around love. What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. God's love for us is essential, right? Our love for God is essential. Our love for other Christians is, is spelled out for us, the importance of that in Scripture. Our love for those who don't know Christ is also spelled out for us in terms of importance in the Scripture, even as far as loving your enemies and praying for those who despitefully use you. 1 John chapter 4. If you skip all the way back to 1 John, all the way to the back of your Bible, just before you get to Revelation, you find 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Go to 1 John chapter 4 and look at me, look with me at verses 7 and 8. Here's how John wraps up his letter. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Since God is love, if your life is characterized by a lack of love, guess what's missing in your life? God. You may be right on all the big issues of doctrine. You may be great at arguing with people who disagree with you, but if you don't love your brothers, 
who are wrong on all those issues, it doesn't matter. Love is a decision, not a feeling. What's the greatest single act of love in human history? Think about it. What's the greatest single act of love in human history? Is it not the cross? The cross is the picture that we have of love, right? Greater love is no one than this, says Jesus, that a man laid down his life for his friends. So the cross is this great picture of love. Did Jesus feel like dying on the cross? No. Did Jesus look forward to it? No, if you think he did, go back to the Garden of Gethsemane and listen to his prayer as he cries out to the Father, let this cup pass from me. But true love, love that is reflective of the love of God, is about living above your feelings. By the power of the Holy Spirit, living above what comes naturally in the flesh. Love puts the interests of others above our own. This is important. There's a lot of opportunity to apply this in our current situation, isn't it? As, as we argue with one another online about what's the appropriate thing to do, we talk about these political issues that are dividing us, and we think about all of these social issues that are dividing us, and then the COVID-19 thing, and what we should be doing for business, and what we should be doing for health, and what we should be doing for churches, and good people have all kinds of strongly held opinions. This is a really important time for us to remember that love is supposed to champion everything that we do with regard to all of this. Again, Jesus is our great example. Let me take you back to John chapter 13. Gospel of John chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 together. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, taken a towel, he girded himself. And the rest of the story is Jesus scrubbing the filthy feet of his disciples. Now, how did Jesus... Humble himself to that point. Like, what could have possibly motivated him to show love to that degree? Well, it tells us in those first couple verses, he knew where he came from. He wasn't just hoping heaven was real. He knew that God was God. He knew his father. He knew where he came from. He knew where he was going. And he knew how faithful the father is. So it was putting trust in God that allowed him to lovingly serve others. He didn't fight for position or honor. He was trusting his father for that. In Philippians 2, where it talks about how Jesus humbled himself by becoming a man and even humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. That whole section is followed by these words. For this reason also, God highly exalted him. He humbled himself to the point of death. Out of love, he served us and the result was that his father highly exalted him, made him the name which is above every name, that at his name every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He trusted his father enough to love. 
we need to be following that same example. Jesus could love sacrificially because he put his trust in the Father. How are you doing at that? In a time when the whole country, (laughs) the whole world, certainly the whole church, has strongly held opinions about the right course that we should be taking with regard to the whole COVID-19 situation, how badly do you really need it to go your way? As you're going to argue and debate with people, are you, are you really going to insist that your opinion is the only one that could be right? Are you really going to come at people with the attitude that says, I'm right and you're wrong because I've got this, this group of experts or I read this article or, online or, or I heard this study? When the other people have the same kinds of experts, same kind of articles, same kind of studies, I mean, there's genuinely held disagreement on this. Are you going to fight and scratch to get your way? Or are you prepared to lay down your rights in order to love other people? Guys, it's such an incredible blessing that we live in this nation where we have a constitution that recognizes our God-given human rights. And yet, as followers of Christ, my rights are less important than glorifying God and loving other people. Are you prepared to lay down your rights in order to love other people? People in your community. People in your family. People in your church. Is it your opinion that matters most? Or is it the glory of God in your relationship with those you're trying to love? If there is one thing love cannot be, it's theoretical. Love is a verb, my friends. And the followers of Jesus should be leading the way and setting the example when it comes to sacrificial love. If you're like me, you're probably chagrined to see that the church is losing so much influence in our culture over the last couple of decades. And some of it, to be sure, is due to the hardening of people's hearts and the rampant runaway nature of sin and how society has come to call good what is bad and bad what is good, and the hardening of the hearts of the people who don't follow Jesus. But you know what? I can't do anything about that. And the words of Jesus echo in my ears. They will know you are my disciples by your love. Could it be that part of the problem in our culture is not just the hard hearts of unbelievers? but the lack of love among believers. If you're a Christian, that's something you can do something about. It breaks my heart that so often when I hear Christians expressing their opinions about how to respond to this pandemic, they're talking mostly about their rights. Guys, our rights are very important, but they pale in comparison to the calling of Jesus on our lives. 
we need to be motivated by our love for God and our love for others. What the world is starving to see is more love from those of us who claim to know the God who is love. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Isn't it time to stop making your rights the topic of discussion? Isn't it time to start seeing others with the eyes of Jesus? Isn't it time to start trusting God enough to pick up a towel and serve somebody else? They will know you are my disciples by your love. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. God, as we think about your incredible love, we're in awe of your goodness and your faithfulness to us. And Lord, we confess that as we try to, to uh, you know, uh, chart a course through these uncharted territories, it's difficult for us to always know what to do and what to feel passionate about and what to act upon. And so God, as you will guide each and every one of us on those details, I pray that all of us would cling to these foundational truths that we must be motivated by our love for you and our love for others. Lord, we lay down our lives at your feet. We're trusting you to handle what's best for us. Now use us to change the world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.